Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 46. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Uptograph. And uh, in news around here, going on these days, uh, issue 13 is entering the design phase. Yeah, we're wrapping up some editing work on articles and assembling photographs and digging up historic photographs. Yeah. Getting into design. Yeah, the, the real nitty-gritty of each issue is is right now. It's, <laughs> it's this phase of... Um, it's a lot of fun, you know, tracking down some of these details for, uh, like, image permissions and just finding the right pictures in museum collections and in drawers around here, you know, we <laughs> have... We have different things kicking around to draw from, so. Yep, there's always some scramble at the ends trying to say, okay, so we need a picture of some dovetails that have this characteristic, and we start like pulling drawers out and trying to find, we need need to fill an image for this one spot or whatever, so. And we have a, I have a photo shoot with my oldest boy. Yeah. Scheduled for next week. That's going to be really fun. So Uh, that's enough. That's all we can say. That's, yeah, can't say more. Um, But we've been busy on the Daily Dispatch as well, mtdailydispatch.com. Um, where we publish uh, every day, every weekday. Uh, We launched a new forum for that because uh, the the way that the platform is set up, there's no way to post pictures right in the comments. So we said, hey, there's so much good information that people were actually just emailing to us. Yeah, sending us photos, asking us questions about it or saying, hey, this is like what you were mentioning the other day. Yeah, And we just want to be able to share that with everyone uh, in a way that is direct. Like, so one person can post now these photos and everyone else can see them yeah and so it's great we have a new forum uh yeah. set up on there for every dispatch follower you are automatically uh, in, uh entered into that so you can log right in and share share recommended resources and shop tips and and that kind of thing so that's been great uh, it's been really awesome i've already lost a few hours of my life mm-hmm. because people have been recommending videos to watch and i bought a book since uh, somebody yep, recommended I did it, too. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, talk about floodgates. It's, yeah, it's uh, you know the the dispatch has been somewhat of a, a one way uh, communications thing that we're publishing stuff and people are kind of responding to us. But we saw um, some back and forth interactions that we wanted to cultivate even more. So yeah. the forum has been really great and exciting uh, for that. Yeah, and so um, also ongoing around here, and it's been a good topic of discussion over in the dispatch and will continue to be is the house project. And yep. we are calling that house by hand, the yep. house by hand project. Uh, and if you are, wanted to learn about this, this project, so we've done podcast episodes talking about this uh, restoration of this, uh, we've been saying 1810 house. It might be older than that. We're going to get dendro uh, analysis to see if it's actually a little older. We think it might be. Um, but uh, we've been talking about it before, but I now have, uh, I bought a URL so that there's sort of a shortcut. You can go to read all about it and see pictures of the project. Um, and that is housebyhand.com. So if you go to housebyhand.com, you'll be able to read the story, read about, um, you know, who potentially, probably it seems made the house. And um, I'm doing more research as we're working on the house to try to solidify those details. But we have pictures on there and some information about that. So you can check out housebyhand.com and share it with other people who like, you know, you know restoring old houses and want to see another example of it. Yeah. Um, we, we've been uh, visiting some graveyards in the area, finding uh, the builder of the house and his relatives. Uh, they're, they're all 
still here. Bringing the Ouija board. Not doing that. No. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Asking, yeah, particularities I mean, about joinery. Like, why did you do it? Yeah, that, that would actually be really helpful as we're restoring the, yeah. the house. But we'll just leave that. Yeah, we, we'll just... we won't go there. Um, but it was part of uh, the, the work we've been doing on the house project that is uh, inspiring this podcast, uh, which um, we're thinking about portable woodworking, thinking outside the shop. Um, a few weeks ago, we, uh, we were working on the floor system for the addition or the L of the house, uh, which is an old barn that we took down last summer. So there will be the house, and it'll have this L off of one side, uh, which is this barn. And uh, we are redoing the entire floor system, and so new sills and all that. And for the, uh, the floor uh, joists or, or girders, we're using pines that we felled here on the property. And so we went out into the woods with a handful of tools to get out the timbers we need, right? We, we dropped them with an axe and um, entirely an axe. And then we are using, uh, you know, things like chalk lines and a few things that we can carry down into the woods uh, to process these timbers, um, primarily because when you're working with timbers, it's way too big to just take out of the woods. You want to leave all your waste materials down there because like yeah. half of the log is waste, right, for what we're doing. Um, so it it got us thinking. And then uh, we are in uh, at the very end of term four of the Morrison Tenant Apprenticeship Program. Right. As we record this, there are yes. only a few days left. There are in only this a term. few days left. And as always, it's been great. And in, um, in week seven, we focus on green woodworking. And several of the apprentices were saying, this is really awesome. So we had some exercises where they they carve these little wooden foxes and they've been working on spoon carving and uh, several comments to the effects of, this is my new like outside sit by the campfire hobby. This is mm -hmm. so great that I can just bring a handful of tools and make stuff and mm -hmm. it's great. It's very portable. And so we're thinking about this very important and valuable aspect of hand tool woodworking, which is portability. Um, so often, you know, the, uh, the typical modern woodworker works within the orbit of it's, it's usually based around the table saw and then, you know, your planets moving out from that are, you have your, your router table and your band saw and your drill press. And of course your dust collector hovers in the background, like, like a forgotten ninth planet, right? It's like Pluto. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's back there in the, the deep dark corner. And yes, Pluto is still a planet. Thank you very much everyone um but yeah so that that's the the usual solar system of the workshop and it's very rigid you can't move far beyond it because the power tools you're using um the machines are very heavy they're very I immovable right if you don't mm -hmm. have a concrete slab they don't roll well through the woods we'll say mm -hmm. but uh hand tools are different and uh so we wanted to a timber cart to haul them through your woods we do, you do need yeah, a, timber a really cart. long extension yeah. cord Yes, and that's the other thing is the power source, right? Um, so you yourself are the power source for these tools. So we wanted to talk a little bit about thinking outside the shop today um, and the, the idea of like a spectrum of portability uh, from what I just described as being centered in the shop to basically roaming through the woods with a backpack and the mm -hmm. tools you need and you can do, um, you know, pretty much whatever you want. So, yeah. and I think it's, it is helpful to think of it in terms of a, a spectrum because, you know, I think it would be easy to think like, okay, well, I can picture 
carrying a knife to a campfire and I can picture being in the shop, but what's between that? Because there are halfway, actually a lot of situations yeah. that are kind of in between that where you're, say you're, you're working inside your workshop, but you have, uh, if you're fortunate enough to have a, a like a back porch or something, or a, even a, a parking lot out front that you can work in, you know, you can bring stuff out into the sun yep. or whatever, enjoy the weather, or there's something that's so dusty and dirty, you want to do it outside yeah, there anyways. Sure. So there are a lot of situations, or like for this house project, we're walking from the workshop down through the woods to my house. It's mm. not a huge walk, but right. it is a walk. Um, and so being able to carry tools down there and think about, okay, well, now my workspace is here. Yeah. So what is the work surface? Where do we set the, the sharp edge tools exactly. down on as we're working so we don't just drop them in the dirt? Um, you know, Where do we set our carpenter's pencils down? On. Yeah, they disappear because very quickly. carpenter's pencils magically disappear. It's a principle of uh, the universe. It is. So, um, you know, thinking about that kind of thing, there really is a spectrum. There are so many different kinds of situations that you need to haul more than one tool at a time. Yeah. Maybe five tools, maybe 10 tools or whatever. And I actually just got back from uh, a little bit of a long weekend camping trip with my family. Uh, and so this is a campground that's two hours away and there's a beach there and um, we're, uh, we're able to go up and sit at the campsite some, but it's a big uh, church camp thing. So we all spend all day at the beach and we're, kids are out in the water and stuff like that. And uh, every year I bring some spoons that I have hewn with an ax. So I start with the hatchet and have everything hewn. And I typically show up to this event with, you know, maybe three or more blanks because I never know how it's going to go. Mm. Uh the past few years, I've brought extra knives and Band-Aids <laughs> and invited others to join me. Um, but I've been, uh, this past weekend, I was sitting on the beach and carving a spoon. And they say, oh, Joshua, you brought the spoons again. And then they oh, nice. you know, hang out and say, what, what is that? And oh, you know, and then we get to talk about it. Uh, so that's a fun thing. And it's great to be able to say, you want me to show you? And then hand yeah. them some some little blanks you know, for foxes or something and have them carving um, make sure you have band-aids. Yeah. I yeah. I brought a, a stack of band-aids the first time and there's a guy from our church carving. He went, oh, oh no. And he, I looked over and he had a little bit of blood on his finger and I whipped out a band-aid and said, here you go. And they all <laughs> laughed like, you knew it. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was it's coming. It's inevitable. But, um, but yeah, so I think that, you know, there's that kind of situation where you're sitting on the beach. I mean, I think the campfire thing is interesting because I would, I can't picture, at least at my campfire, we don't have like a, a floodlight that's down on the mm-hmm. area. So sitting at like low lighting at a campfire, I wouldn't feel comfortable carving too much. I, mm-hmm. It makes me a little nervous. But sitting out on the beach, it makes a lot of sense. It's really uh, a blast to be able to do that and to bring woodworking into something, especially something so relaxing as carving a spoon. Yeah, totally. Uh, maybe your bonfires aren't big enough. That might be That's it. You want it like almost intolerably hot and looking like the sun glowing there in the woods. Um, yeah, so uh, something that we used to do um, regularly, uh, we were, it was, it was nearly monthly there for a little while. Yeah, it was every month. Yeah. Um, uh, Joshua and I used to go to a local retirement home and uh, we, we would put together a little presentation on some aspect of woodworking. Whether it was um, we did, you know, the wooden fox carving, we did um, sharpening, um, we made little butter spreaders uh, with with the folks there. Chip carving. Yeah, chip carving, and and they 
uh, we, we all just had so much fun with it. And, but the idea was, okay, so we have to go in, we have to plan something that does not involve a huge number of tools. Yeah. And it's for about maybe five or six people right. who are going to be doing it with us. Yep. So we have to have enough of everything for everyone. Yeah. And so the, I, I think that the, um, uh, the most difficult thing about the planning of that is just how to keep it simple and portable. Um, you know, it's it's easy to get start bringing more than you need uh, in terms of you know doing. It's much easier to do planning ahead and prepping stock ahead mm-hmm. uh, so that you can maintain that portability and go go light basically yeah. into like a teaching situation like that. And so um, that's something that we we really enjoyed doing, and it seemed like everyone who was, was coming to that was, was really loving it. And, you know, just with a handful of simple tools, we could work through this project together. And I think that applies to, you know, if you think about going over to, you know, your, uh, you know, your cousin's house or your uncle's house or whatever, and you're going to be there with some family gathering, if you had some stuff to be able to pass around and share, you know, um, bring your, bring your niece over and say, Hey, here, let me show you how to carve this, you know, the spoon or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that would be a, a really uh, cool and rewarding thing to do. Um, those events can be a little hectic, depending on how many right, kids yeah. are there. Pull all the but knives out it, when, when and, all the kids are out. knives to all the kids. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. But um, I think just having that kind of stuff um, around in different kinds of situations is always um, it's a good opportunity for uh, you know, an encouraging conversation or just chatting as you're picking away at something. Yeah. Um, so historically, you know, we've we've written um, and other authors have written over the years from from different um, traditions. Uh, the idea of this uh, portability as a historic practice. Um, you know, there are lots of uh, tradesmen and journeymen who literally lived up to the name of journeying to where their work was and where their work was found. And once they got there, they would set up shop and. Um, so back in uh, issue seven, I, I wrote an article about wo- uh, work holding from three different traditions. And um, one of them uh, was the Japanese tradition. And I talked to Andrew Hunter um, and got some insights from him on the uh, Japanese work holding tradition. And um, we were talking about how you know, some of these journeymen would uh, travel to these job sites in, in a far off village or town. And they would only bring like their chisels and plain irons and, you know, other small tools that they could carry easily. And once they got there, you know, if they were, um, doing, you know, interior doors or trim work or some other finishing work for some of these, these homes, they knew they would be there for several months. And so once they got there, they would make bodies for their planes. They would uh, make a planing bench, which is basically a a smoothed timber that's propped up on one end. Uh, The other end is usually braced against the wall or something. They would would make their shop um, from their portable kit, and they would, you know, be able to get to work at that point. Then when they were done, ready to move on, they'd often discard the plane bodies and obviously they're not bringing their planing beam with them Mm -hmm. um so it was this mindset that's very different from from ours today that you know i think of a wooden bodied plane well the wooden body is is just the uh the jig for the actual cutting tool which is the iron 
Um, and so that is, you know, you can make those whenever you want. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, which, which is a crazy thought to me because that's a very complicated jig. Um, but yeah, um, basically what, what Andrew Hunter was talking about was a lot of that, um, way of thinking is really rooted in the, the kind of, uh, minimalist aesthetic of the Japanese culture. You know, this is a culture that uh, did not, uh, typically even utilize chairs until the 1960s, mm. right? Uh, people yeah. sat on the floor and a lot of the traditional woodworking was done in a sitting position. So when you're sitting, you're using your body to hold your work. And you don't need anything fancy except your body and the right. ability to use it um, right. to to hold the work. Well, doing. and it's interesting too because I remember the first workbench I made, it was because I hurt myself. Mm. I was uh, out of my front yard trying to cut something and I had, you know, I'd graduated school, I'd moved on, I was renting this small house and I was trying to do something around, the, you know, some little house project and stuff, but I didn't have a full workbench set up. And I was out in my front yard and I was holding it in a dumb way and I slipped and I had the saw like hit my thumb and I was like, mm. dang, and I was, you know, bleeding and stuff. And I thought, okay, now it's time to make a workbench. Mm-hmm. And, but it's just interesting too, to see these traditions that, um, that didn't utilize serious workbenches. It's just, I never even... I was not really doing any purposeful body holding. I was just trying to hold on to that right. thing as I was yeah. wrangling it. Um, and so I think that's, it is sort of uh, an important thing to think about or a re- revealing thing to think about with approaching work in this portable way that it's not just that, it's not just the exact same thing minus the shop. Right. It's kind of a different approach. You're going to carry just the tools you need, just the minimal tools. So if you get dependent on specialized tools, and that you can only use those, you're going to have a harder time bringing everything you need right. to the job site yep. because you have way too many things you are dependent on. Um, but also with body holding, um, you know, it is a different way of working. You have to get comfortable holding something down with your toes. Yes, you, exactly. You pick your leg up high, you crunch it down with your foot, you lean over, you got to get comfortable doing some awkward things that are safe. And that's what yep. I was not doing is I was doing awkward things that were not safe. <laughs> right. Um, and so I, I think that is something that's um, when you when you challenge yourself and push yourself out into that um, into that kind of working, then it kind of unlocks a lot of body holding stuff um, and planing stop. You know, working against stops, uh, ways of working what we call free woodworking. That's it's not constrained by a vice, but it's just uh, the stock is free, only restrained by your hand in a stop. Um, when you when you put yourself in a situation that that's all you have. Then when you come back into the shop, you start realizing you're actually utilizing, I, I mean, at least for me, I started utilizing a lot more of those free work holding methods. Cause I said, I just, now I know how to hold it. Right. I don't want to mess with the vice. Yeah. So I think they're really, they're very different approaches, but they're really important and valuable to, to kind of jump into those shoes and try that way for a little bit. Yeah. It's interesting. In issue five, we had, um, author Kim Choi write, um, his article about uh, 10,000 hours um, looking, he, he wanted to explore Japanese woodworking. He's living in Singapore and he was getting into woodworking and he lived in this apartment. And so the only space big enough for a shop was like out in this shared hallway, right? And so his goal was to build a Rubo workbench. That's what he wanted. He wanted Western workbench. He wanted Western tools. But he's working in his little apartment and he's sitting on the floor and holding stuff. And he's like, wait a minute, this is a lot like 
Japanese woodworking. Mm -hmm. I should look into that tradition because that might be really quite practical for me. So he, he ended up doing all this, and he, he writes about it in his article, uh, all this exploring, and he, he really became enamored with the Japanese style of woodworking. Um, never built his Rubo bench, but um, utilized the, uh, the Japanese methods of, of work holding and making the small little sawhorses for the floor. And he's like, this, this works. This is why this was done this way, because mm-hmm. this, this culture is built around, you know, um, the floor sitting and um, small tight spaces. And you don't have, you don't necessarily want to set aside room for some massive heavy workbench. Right. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't ever necessary. And um, I know Andrew Hunter was telling me about the fact that he, you know, is an American and grew up in the West and he uh, had, he loves the Japanese style of woodworking, but uh, physically struggled with it. He said at one point, uh, to be honest, I wish I'd never sat in a chair. I'd work from the floor if I could, but having not grown up sitting on the floor is very difficult to make the switch. My knees eventually told me I needed to compromise. So I try working as low as I can, but I do it in a way that's comfortable for me. And so he's he's found that compromise. Um, he still adheres to Japanese woodworking and tools and, and mastering those tools, but he also has to adapt a little bit. So he'll, he'll use a bench and he'll use vices and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to me, I, I thought that's, uh, that's really a, a valuable way of utilizing the best of that sort of minimalist tradition mm-hmm. um, and adapting it to your shop. And again, that's why we say this is, this is like a spectrum of, of work holding, of portability. Um, yeah. Well, and then you think about the bodgers, um, and you have these chair makers uh, going out into the woods to uh, to harvest their materials to be able to turn all of the the legs and spindles, and you know, for mm-hmm. these chairs to ship them back to the the assembly factories right, that, where they're exactly. going to put this stuff together. But these guys are out in the woods uh, making you know chair part after chair part after chair part after yeah. chair part. Uh, you know, they have this this specialty in what they're doing. And for them to be able to go out into the woods having all the metal components they need to build their lathe yep. and their few uh, turning chisels, gouges, and and go out there and build their lathe right there, build their uh, their huts to be able to work in, and they're, they're using all the material that's right around them. And then to be able to... Um, to work in that area and to be able to just move to the next spot to bring all those bits right. with them and set up shop uh, all over again uh, is another kind of scale or another um, logic to portable woodworking, thinking outside the shop. They made the shop in the woods and they were there for a long time. Right. But then they moved. Yep. Once once the woods were either, you know, thinned out or it was time to move on to a, a you know better place with better materials, all the good materials were used up. Um, they just uproot and move. And uh, yeah, I think I think it's an interesting thing uh, to think about. You know, these these guys were going out there for for seasons, right? Um, they they build these hovels and then they'd insulate the hovels with all the the scraps from the turning. But most of what they were processing became waste. And it's kind of another side, another angle to the idea of of timber framing. When you're going out into the woods, you're hewing. Because the materials are so massive, you have to reduce materials to get those finished products back in. 
Um, with the bodgers, it wasn't so much that they're using huge materials, but they're just removing so much waste, and there's absolutely no value in bringing those raw materials into town because then you have to get rid of the waste. Well, and for them, I don't think it was so much um, the size of the individual pieces, right. but the total volume. Yes, of yeah, <laughs> like the clear a forest of and haul it into exactly. town. Exactly, yeah. and a lot of it was um, you know like beach coppice, and so they're mm-hmm. using stuff that's at most like six inches in diameter. Um, Maybe a little bit more than that, but for the most part, they're very small trees. Yeah. And so uh, it just doesn't make sense to go into the woods, haul that, cut it down, bring it in to process it. Then you have to get rid of the waste. It made sense for them to spend the season in the woods and to adapt to that sort of um, portability. And yeah. And even if you're in, in your own shop, I mean, if you're going to do a similar sort of thing, you say, yeah, but I'm not going to go out into the woods and do that much production. So I'll just haul it all into my shop. I mean, again, I would, it still is on our list. We have a lot of different things going on here, but we want to put a porch off the back of the shop. Yeah. So all that processing, all the hewing, our yeah, pile of shavings, out there. Yeah. <laughs> our pile of shavings and hewing uh, debris uh, can, you know, be partially living outside. So it's on the mm-hmm. porch and then we just sweep it off yeah. into the grass and it's got a pile we can haul away, you know? Yeah, every time we have, um, you know, a big operation to do, if it's, if it's a nice day, we, we, we drag the, the low Roman bench out front. Mm -hmm. Um, I know at home, my, my basement shop has, it's a walkout basement on one side. So I just open the doors and I kind of flow out there. Like I'll bring benches and saw horses out and, um, I work half in half out and it's, it's great. Uh, in the winter, that's not really possible. So it becomes yeah. much, you know, my, my shop is much smaller in the winter because I don't have uh, that aspect of the outdoors. Um, but there's another tradition which, which really takes this minimalism um, to an extreme, and that's, um, I called it the Northern Indigenous Workholding. It's, it's kind of like the um, um, Ashinaabe or uh, Eastern Woodlands um, some of the, the tribes uh, over in this area um, utilized this tradition where basically it was four tools that they'd use to make pretty much anything they needed. And so it's the, uh, the, um, the awl, the belt axe, the axe, and the crooked knife, or mokotagan. Um, so I talked to um, a man named Nick Dillingham who he makes some incredibly beautiful things. He, he works with birch bark and, and pine needles and um, spruce root and all kinds of things to make. Um, he makes beautiful tools and beautiful objects. Uh, and so he was talking about, the, um, about this four-tool philosophy, which is you know, extraordinarily portable. It was based around you know, lifestyle of portability. These tribes would move from one hunting ground to the next or from you know, summer down in, in this area in Maine, the tribes would move to the coast in the summertime uh, for fishing and things like that. And then they'd move inland for the winter, which, which to me always seemed kind of confusing because you move inland and it gets, it's a lot colder. But inland, it's easy to move around in the winter. There are frozen rivers and there aren't coastal storms going on. So um, that's why they did that. But using those tools... Um, what, what Nick told me is, um, he said with those tools, you should be able to make anything you'll need with just those four tools. The system of woodworking requires more knowledge of the material than most. It's 90% mental and 10% physical. And I think Joshua, that's what you were alluding to earlier when you said, uh, you know, um, 
minimalizing your toolkit requires more skill, Mm -hmm. right? To make something beautiful with a knife as opposed to making it with a more jigged tool that's more controlled and controllable requires a lot more skill. Yeah. Um, So those unjigged edges and things like like making a beautiful um, pair of um, snowshoes or a, a toboggan that's well made with just those four tools requires a lot of practice and a lot of skill. Um, but it has been done and can be done. Um, and even for more utilitarian stuff, you know, like, um, or I should say maybe bigger scale stuff like hewing out in the woods, you know, for this, um, for the house project, hewing the girders, having that kind of stuff, bringing the tools to the timbers, um, and, and being able to make those, those things right there, uh, you're not necessarily looking at you know high refinement. That's not the goal, right? But it is something that you can um, you you can show up to bring it to the bring the tool to the timber. And it's a lot more practical, um, but it's at a bigger scale. So you can't let's say you're not super super skilled. There are things you can do out in the woods. It's not like we're saying you know only if you're really high skill right. level then you can go do this whole yeah. thing we're talking about. It's that there are different kinds of things. So whether it's uh, you know, harvesting material or doing rougher coarse work that can totally be done. Do all the the coarse work with the coarse tools in a place where you yeah. can dump the waste. Yeah, where you can leave it, and it's <laughs> actually good for the environment out there, right? Yep. Uh, it's good to leave those chips and those shavings out in the woods, uh, where they contribute to the the health of the environment out there. Uh, kind of think of uh, like say the ultimate in in portability is just. Uh, the Henry David Thoreau thing. You bring an axe into the woods to make your, you borrow your house. You borrow an axe from go, someone. You've gone to the woods, yeah, to live intentionally, to suck the marrow, you know, out of life. Um, so he just went, he he took Ralph Waldo Emerson's axe and uh, sharpened it up and went off into the woods and built a house. And of course, his original house does not survive. Uh, we can assume that it was a very rough structure because he was just hewing uh, with the same axe he chopped with and uh he describes it as you know a lot of his studs he just hewed on two sides and he left the bark everywhere else and um and then he you know sheathed it and called it good and he was forever patching up air leaks and things in it so it was a gappy leaky house but he built it entirely with an axe and this was a guy who um probably less than others of the time had you know experience with with axe work and that sort of thing. Right. He's a fairly well-to-do family. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was able to, to throw that place together in a few months, just him working solo, and visitors would stop by from time to time and wonder what this, this crazy poet guy is doing in the woods. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the ideal image we get, you know, the, the, the settler or the, the pioneer or the, um, the, the scout going into the woods with, with just a simple tool and, and making what he needs. Um, and then to contrast that with Dick Prenicky, uh, who is uh, in the Alaskan wilderness uh, building his cabin by himself. And, and like he also, he went out with some, um, some tools more than right. just the one ax, um, but not many. Right. And I think, is it all of them or most of them without handles? So he would, he yeah, started by handles. making all the handles yep. and he was har- harvesting, you know, discarded metal. Um, yeah, stuff that would wash up on the shore of the lake. Yeah. It's just amazing uh, to be able to to make tools with that kind of stuff and then to build a house and to be comfortable. I, I think, you know, like the um, the new book Lost Art Press has 
the handcrafted like life of Dick Prennicky, uh, looking at the stuff he was making. Some of the other Prennicky books are about um, about him and his life, and they of course talk about the fact that he made stuff, but but. This book in particular is focused on all of the details, all the stuff he made, how he made his wooden hinges and how he did all this stuff. And so I see that and I think uh, this is what Thoreau wished he could have been. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thoreau was, he was a dreamer and he had lots of lofty thoughts. Um, But again, he only lived in his cabin a couple years and then Mm -hmm. went back into town. Prennicky was out in the, the wilderness of Alaska for over 30 years. And, um, you know, he was, he became, he was just extremely skilled, um, at, at the work he did with simple tools. So a lot of people, I mean, a lot of you have probably, uh, seen or, or read the Prennicky book or seen the videos. I mean, he, he, what is the one, one man's wilderness? Is that the yes, book or the film? Yep, that's the film. That's the film. I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he, he was filming himself. He was way ahead of his time. Yeah. Really. You know, back his in the Instagram like, count uh, account would have been, awesome. would have been incredible. <laughs> yeah. But he had his little, his little film video, you know, his film camera, um, mm. taking films of himself uh, doing this work and then it was all compiled and he did a voiceover and description and um, they're they're out there on YouTube to watch but a lot of people would see that and go wow that well that's that's great that's the ideal uh, if you're looking to this minimalist philosophy but I and you I don't, don't have I don't a think wife I can, and children yeah like exactly Prennicky, like you know? Prennicky, like Thoreau um, like Bill Copperthwaite like Copperthwaite like- <laughs> yeah. But but uh, but let's say you do have responsibilities and you have you know a, job. a, a mortgage to pay and all that. <laughs> so say you're drawn to that, but you you just want to see how do I incorporate some of that into my shop time or how can I think outside the shop with my woodworking. Um, so some of the things that uh, that we've talked about and some of the things that we do because. Uh, we do. We, we, we've gone to shows to demonstrate woodworking. So we have to bring everything, sometimes thousands of miles, uh, like going to Iowa. Yep. You know, that's a long drive. And if you're taking a minivan with a family of five and uh, gear to, like, magazines to sell, you don't have much room for tools. So you have to have a pretty min- minimalist setup. Uh, so we have a, a workbench. It's a Nicholson bench, Joshua, that you built for... It, it's actually for a, a Living History Days, uh, sort of like a, a reenactment type event for a 1790s place. And so I would, uh, I, I built this bench for that purpose so I could break it down really quickly, throw it in the back of my van as small as possible, and then be able, but be able to set it up quickly for having a, f- basically a full workshop out in the woods demonstrating. Yeah. So this was not supposed to be in the woods. It's just they don't, they didn't have a wood shop set up. So in front of the cabin that my wife and I were staying um, and demonstrating, uh, we I would just put my workbench out in front and show them how the work was done. So yeah, and so you you brought to that you bring a pretty a basic but complete kit. Yeah, I right? brought my whole English tool chest, and I brought uh, which is not portable, <laughs> uh, not very portable. I mean. You can haul it in a minivan, but right. a lot of stuff yeah. is portable in a minivan. Yes, a lot of stuff is. <laughs> but um, you know, the the workbench was only uh, six feet long. It's made out of softwood. It's the top is two inches thick. It's it's a really pretty 
light thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to have diagonal bracing for the legs and the aprons, um, the the sideboards on the the front and back, or like the front apron, you can think of it, um, that really stabilized the whole thing. And then honestly, putting it on a dirt ground, dirt Mm. floor really helps because it can dig in. Yeah. If it's on, you know, some, like if you put it on the floor of a gymnasium, yeah. It's going to slide all over. It would slide everywhere. You would need a, you know, 800 pound French oak. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Workbench so it wouldn't move anywhere. But if you have a a softwood bench, either you can screw it to the floor if you're in a shop or if you bring it outside, it's really not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that bench is here in the shop and it is, um, it's typically fastened to the floor, mm-hmm. but not always. And we can easily pop it up and bring it outside or loan it out to somebody. Or, yeah, right. Um, and it's it's very easy to do. It's it's just a super simple bench that, that we actually find that we prefer over fancy ones sometimes. Yeah. Um, and the other um, bench that we use uh, often and gets dragged around everywhere to every corner of the property is like the low bench or the Roman workbench, as it's sometimes called. Uh, and those, if you don't have a low workbench or low Roman bench, you've got to get one. Also called a staked bench yes, a lot of times. Right. Yep. Uh, you got to get one. You got to make one, basically. Uh, yeah, don't buy one. I don't know if you can buy them. Oh, I'm sure someone's selling it. Yeah, but make one. It's a They're slab simple. with four sticks. Yeah, a slab with, with legs. And you will find it's, you know, it's, it's bench height, uh, be, as in sitting bench. Uh, I'm sitting on a bench chair right height. now. Yeah, so chair height. But um, it is an extremely useful and versatile thing. It's it's like the um, the most luxurious sawhorse that you'll ever use because it's uh, the top is quite wide. You know, on ours, it's, what is it, like 10 inches wide? Yeah, 10 or 11. 10 or 11 inches wide. It's it's, it's uh, just the plank I had. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's whatever, whatever big a, piece of wood. It's less than a foot. Yeah, I think it is slightly under a foot. Uh, but it's just a thick slab of softwood, and it's like five or six feet long mm-hmm. with four legs. And um, it's great for all kinds of operations. You can do, you know, you can sit on a board and plane it. You can put a little planing stop uh, on it and plane into that. A little, even You could even mortise for a little bench hook in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in, in our case, what's happened is, uh, the plank has kind of settled a little bit, so the the legs, the tenons of the legs that are through tenons, the round through tenons wedge, they're kind of sticking up proud. And I've sawn them flush before, but they're just now a little bit is still mm-hmm. sticking up. And that's actually I just left it because it actually is a great planing stop, right? To be able to butt the material up to it and and do that work. So I could definitely just cut them flush and it'd be fine. But I kind of like having them just sitting there, ready to go. Yeah, and. And the thing about using that bench for just your typical um, your typical tall bench or full-size bench operations is you very quickly uh, start to come up with kind of outside-the-box solutions to work holding. Uh, like, Joshua, what you were just saying about the tenon protruding through makes a great stop. Um, also, you know, if you're shaping something, let's say you, you're using a spoke shave and you're, you're rounding over a piece of stock, you can put the piece of stock into your chest and put the other end up against that stop and you can just shave down with a spoke shave and it's a very secure way of holding it. And then you look at some old pictures and you go, oh, I didn't invent that. Yeah, a bunch of people have done that before. (laughs) 
Um, and that's uh, books like Woodworking in Estonia are full of pictures of people sitting at low benches using rope to hold little barrels that they're cleaning up the inside of, or uh, they they come up with some little some little rig for work holding. There's just a little stop, and they brace against it. Um, it's it's actually a lot of fun because yeah. you're not simply relying on um, a big fancy vice or something. You you're bracing it against yourself. You you get your foot in there. Um, and it, it is not only good for, um, you know, woodworking in general, but that's also a good way to you know, stay flexible, you know, <laughs> uh, it's good yeah, for you. Definitely. I mean, talk about building core muscles yeah. when you're engaging your toes, when you're doing your sawing, that's good. That's good for you for sure. Yeah. So if, if you got, um, a lightweight and portable bench that can get you out the door, um, you know, out the door of your shop, out into the yard or. Uh, down into the woods even, um, you got to be able to carry some tools, right? And Joshua, like you said, the English joiner chest is not necessarily all that portable no. unless I mean, you have uh, some again, friends. Yeah, or like a minivan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> outfit your minivan with tool racks and yeah. then you can drive wherever. I mean, that's... That, that's what we're talking that about. This work. whole episode is yeah. all about basically what it's you about can haul in a minivan. Minivans. Because <laughs> they are the pinnacle of vehicle technology. We agree on that. Yeah. Um, but... There are ways, there are better ways of hauling your toolkit out if you are able to reduce your toolkit to a number of useful tools that, that will get you what, they'll, they'll finish the work you need, right? Yep. Um, it's a beautiful thing about wooden body planes that they're light, much lighter than metal body planes. Um, there are some tools that are inescapably heavy. So you got to minimize on those. Like you don't need to bring, you know, your, your whole hammer collection when you go out, <laughs> you could bring one, maybe one. Yeah. yeah. Um, but other things like, um, one of the things we have our apprenticeship, uh, students doing when they go out into the woods is we, we make, have them make a club and wedges, right? Super simple to do. So you don't necessarily need to bring a club or a mallet if you're going off into the woods to to do some some work or build a little cabin or something. Just make your own club. You don't have to carry that kind of weight out. Yeah. Um, but to carry the tools that you're going to bring, you need uh, a tool tote or something portable. Yeah, something portable. I mean, so there's the tool tote, the classic tool tote that every hand tool woodworker has has dreams of and yeah. envisions. I want to be hear, Roy Underhill. You hear when the I grow music up. play. You know, he's in the city and then the strains of Kildare's Fancy starts up and then Roy starts walking past. There's like the traffic accident and the police officer there and yeah. and he's walking, carrying his tools and his axe, yeah. which would probably get you a second look these days, but I don't know. Ah. And then he starts down the railroad track and then the, the dog appears out of nowhere and then disappears. Where did the dog go? That's, we all want to know where the dog went. <laughs> And so then, you know, he's hopping across the stream and up through the woods and comes to his shop and opens the door. So, but he's able to transport his tools. From wherever he was. From wherever he was and whatever he was doing. I don't know what he was doing. I think there's a metaphor. Must be like from his house in the city that he went out to. Yeah. Must have been what it was. He probably has a fancy penthouse. Hmm. Um, Yeah, where was he coming from? We should have asked him last time we were down there. Yeah. Next time. Anyways, but this tool tote is classic, you know, around in antique stores around here, you'll see these with this, the center board. So picture it like a big tray. It's like mm-hmm. the sides are three inches tall or something. And some, sometimes there's uh canted out or slanted outwards. And then there's a center board that divides it. And then it, 
in the center board is shaped to handle. Uh, sometimes there are other designs too, where the handle is uh, a separate piece. Um, but this whole idea of being able to just have your little tray of tools and carry it around like that um, is really important. It's really valuable, and it's really so simple. They're always, I mean, almost always, and just nailed together. They're not yeah. really fancy show pieces. They're just a way to cart your tools around easily. So, you know, being able to have these kinds of uh, simple totes just to haul something. I think people get paralyzed when they look at the Benjamin Seaton tool chest or they right. they look at all these like super fancy um, English tool chest designs or something and they think, oh, I need my my DTC or my, yeah. my specific ATC. my yeah. specific kind of thing so that I can do woodworking when really all you need is just some little thing to, a little box to cart this, these yeah. things around. I mean, go back to the Japanese tradition. And the, so the first thing a Japanese tradesman would make is his his tool chest, which is a simple nailed together wooden box. It looks like a crate. Yeah. And that was what everyone used. And it serves its purpose perfectly, but it is not remotely fancy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and it's historically, I mean, that that was the practice where you might have a tool chest and your tool set in your barn or in your workshop, but then you also have the ability to carry the set of tools you need to go on site and do the work that you need to do. I often use my pack basket for that too, because um, you can keep it on your back. And you can also, from harvesting material for spoon carving, green wood, I can put it right in you the pack. You throw that too. right in there, yeah. So a pack basket, you know, an ash, a wooden pack basket, uh, I find it really useful as well. Yeah, because it has, you know, rigid sides as opposed to, you know, fabric. First of all, edge tools aren't going to uh, end up poking through it. Right. And um, second, it, because it holds its shape, everything is protected inside. It's not all getting squished and mm -hmm. crunched. You can actually, like, stack tools in there and yeah. they will stay. And they're wicked comfortable. Yeah. They're awesome. Yeah. And uh, again, that's getting back. That's a very ancient design. Yeah. It's way back before... Before the Manas, you know, it's back even <laughs> back uh, before we came here. But um, uh, one design that I saw that I was inspired by was the old, um, from the old Little House on the Prairie TV show, uh, which was inspired by the books, but obviously didn't get its uh, necessarily visual elements from the books. But uh, Pa had this tool carry that... I always admired. It was like this this double decker thing uh, with a strap that went over his shoulder and also had a handle. And he'd use that, you know, for hauling his tools around. And um, I always thought, oh, that's that would be a good way to go. Uh, it looks like it has pretty decent capacity. You wouldn't want to carry it, you know, miles, but you could carry it half a mile if you had to. Could take breaks if you're being chased by a bear if you're being yeah exactly <laughs> um but it always seemed like you know all his tools he had you know a couple saws in there and he'd have his chisels and and so you could fit all that stuff in and so that's kind of that idea is what i based um for for my tool tote my toolbox that i can fit most of the tools i need uh in it and it um would fit safely in the trunk of my car um, but that was like the maximum dimensions were the width of the trunk of my car and the lumber I had at the time. So it's, it's very light when it's empty. And then with wooden body planes and things like that in it, it's not tremendously heavy and it is quite portable. 
Um, so that is kind of evolving from the Roy Underhill design up through the paw angles uh, <laughs> to something that's less than a tool chest, but but bigger than a tool tote. And that just uh, offers that freedom to uh, to move around. So yeah, I mean, that that's the spectrum. I mean, we're talking about you can, you know, throw a carving knife in your, your pocket, a folding knife. You can you have the shop situation and everything in between. But the real point of what, you know, we've been thinking about is we want you to be thinking about how you can think outside the shop. How can you work outside of your shop? How can you bring the shop into the woods? And then maybe you can bring some of the woods into the shop and try mm. to see how you can ha- kind of cross-pollinate these ways of working uh, so that you can, you know, develop skills that you wouldn't be forced to develop otherwise. Uh, but this is a, a freeing thing to do, to be able to uh, travel around, you know, have tools, will travel. You yeah, know, and, exactly. And be able to, to build stuff in different situations, whether you're on a beach, at a campfire, or in your shop, you, have, you feel uh, equipped to be able to uh, take hold of your little world and, and shape something. Yeah, and to, to get out of the rut of being stuck in the shop all the time. And to um, to come up with new methods to hold stuff and new ways to use tools, uh, and uh, like like you said, Joshua, to just shape the world around you. Um, yeah, because it's a very. Uh, it's, Who wouldn't want to do that? Yeah, it's what we love to do. <laughs> so, uh, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comments or questions, uh, you can leave them below. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.